Mission Log Supplemental. The one with Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens. Star Trek. Out of Phase. Hello and welcome to another edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Normally on this show, we're taking apart a Star Trek story, but today we are taking apart stories about Star Trek. Now, this is another supplemental edition, the last of those before we hit Star Trek The Motion Picture. Before we get to today's interview, we are happy to welcome Connected Data back as a sponsor of this week's Mission Log. Uh, Connected Data, of course, makers of the transporter, which we've talked about here before. But, um, John, why don't you uh, remind people uh, what the transporter is and then uh, tell people what it is that you like? Because you and I have been using transporter for a while. Yeah, well, a a transporter is a device that uh, breaks you down to an atomic level and uh, reconstructs you at uh, at another location. (laughs) That's so not true. You know that's not true. (laughs) I do. I do. I'm sorry. I couldn't resist. Uh, The transporter by Connected Data is a data storage and sharing. I think that's a really critical thing there, sharing uh, device that you use with your computer system. And it is so cool because it allows you to, well, back up, say, critical data. Um, for example, all the photos you might take when you're on vacation or at a Star Trek convention, don't know, maybe, and uh, get all of that stuff into a secured place. So it's not just there in your computer where you could lose it or, you know, you know file corruption or virus or something might wipe it out. And then once it's on the transporter, you can share it with other people. That is what is so cool to me. And you can do it without buying another service like a a Dropbox or Box.net. It's yours. You own it. And it sits there on your desk. Yeah. And and there are a number of things. I mean, just inside what you just said, there are a number of things to like. I mean, you mentioned the fact that it's, it's sort of like a Dropbox service. One of the things that Connected Data says is if you like Dropbox, you'll love Transporter. And there are a couple of reasons for that. First of all, it's a one-time cost. I mean, we, I think, are paying 99 bucks a year for 100 gigabytes of storage. And, mm-hmm. and we do that every year. And, you know, you don't get anything at the end of that. If we ever stop paying, then, you know, we lose our storage. It's done. Uh, you can pay, uh, I think it's, I can't remember what the prices are exactly. I want to say there's like one for $249 that's a, uh, that's a, that's a one terabyte. Uh, the point, though, is you pay one time and you've got the storage forever. And then the other really cool thing about that is you don't have to worry about where your information is. The people that you're sharing with are the people who have access to your information as opposed to any third party you can name. I mean, they might be hackable. They might be, oh, I don't know. They they may choose to share information with other parties. Um, You don't have to worry about that kind of thing uh, with, with the transporter. Well, and Ken, I've been using Transporter with Mission Log listeners, which is great because if they have something they want to share, let's say it's a a set of files, a a script or a video or something like that, I can just send them a link to Transporter and then they can upload it directly to my Transporter. I don't have to wait for Dropbox or anything like that. I see it right away and it's private. It's just between that other person and me. So to me, that is worth the price of admission, no question about it. Now, the cool thing is they've got a special deal for people listening right now. Uh, Listeners to Mission Log can save 10% off of their purchase. That's up to $35 on any transporter model by using the code MLOG, M-L-O-G, all caps, no spaces, 
and that's one you buy at filetransporterstore.com. There are three models to choose from if you want to buy the storage with your transporter. There's a 500 gigabyte model, a one terabyte model, or a two terabyte model. And to get, I mean, any of those cost less than one year of equivalent storage on Dropbox. So that's, I mean, it's, it, it's really a great deal. Sometimes it might feel like it, ooh, that's a big upfront cost. It's a one-time cost as opposed to the year after year after year that you're paying for any third party out there. Now, if you've already got your own USB drive that you want to use, they have this other little thing. It looks kind of like a hockey puck. It's called the transporter sink. It's actually about the size of a hockey puck, too, now that I think about it. Gives you the same functionality and lets you select which capacity and brand of drive that you want to use. So basically, you take your USB drive, you plug it into your transporter sink, and you've got the same functionality for less money. And then again, because you're listening to this, it's even less money. It's normally 99 bucks for the transporter sync, but if you use the code MLOG20, that's M-L-O-G, all caps, no spaces, then the number 20, MLOG20 will save you 20% off the transporter sync, again, when you buy at filetransporterstore.com. And in addition, anybody who is ordering from filetransporterstore.com using the mission log codes will get free shipping. So additional savings. Thank you to our friends at Connected Data. You enter those codes at the very end of the ordering process. So if you're going through it and you haven't found a place to do it yet, just keep going. Before you click the final button, that's where you end. Uh, the codes that will save you either 10% off or 20 bucks, depending on the transporter that you choose. One last thing about it, if you're wondering whether Transporter is right for you, buy one and start using it. You get a 30-day risk-free satisfaction guarantee. So there really is nothing to lose trying out a Transporter. Unless you're Commander Sonak. You know, John, in a different timeline, we would be going from the animated series straight to another TV show. Yes, you're right. And you just blew my mind. You're right. In a parallel universe, that's what would happen. But today's Mission Log Ken serves as a transition. We're trying to fill that gap between the end of the animated series and the first motion picture. All we had in between were some toys, uh, some books, those awesome read-along records, the power records, which... uh, Uh, I've still got. Um, So we're breaking our usual format of morals, meanings, messages in order to have a bit of a history lesson. Think of it as an extended trivia segment. Now, during those dark years after 1974, Gene Roddenberry was hatching a plan to bring Star Trek back somehow, maybe as a TV series again, maybe as a movie, but it wouldn't be animated. It would be live action. Now, today we welcome Judith and Garfield Reeves-Stevens, authors who have a long Trek pedigree. They've written about 20 Star Trek books, combination of novels, co-authorships with Shatner, as well as nonfiction volumes. They served as story editors, producers on the final season of Enterprise. Most importantly for today's topic, they wrote the book on Phase 2. Literally, they wrote the book called Star Trek Phase 2, The Lost Series, which came out in 1997. If you don't have their book, get it. You'll want all the details once you hear our interview. And to tide you over, we also have some pretty lengthy discovered documents at missionlogpodcast.com to go along with this episode. We'll share with you pieces of the draft, the God thing, as well as the Star Trek Phase 2 Writer's Bible. Now, the idea of reboots and retellings and um, 
you know, new starts to established characters seems almost old hat today. Uh, but as, as, as Gar points out, this used to be a more novel idea. Star Trek has had the good luck in two remarkable ways. And, and phase two is one of those things because the original Star Trek had a first pilot that the network looked at and said, you know, this isn't quite what we want. This isn't quite right. Go back and do it again. And then they did the new one, and that's what set the whole thing in motion. Phase two fits into that same situation. It was a chance for all these people to get together with Gene and... Put down their first thoughts and what they... To explore it in a way in which... And it didn't last, but it it was so valuable that they got that experience. Yeah, and they, they got it really close, and then that's what made them go back and do the motion picture, and then definitely lead into Next Generation. So it's the same thing. It's like that first unaired pilot. They got a chance to really dig in, go in a direction that wasn't quite right, and then hit the right direction. And it was almost like R&D. Yes. So that that they were able to do it unfettered by anything else and and really get their bearings. And sometimes in writing, uh, the execution is when you discover what you ought to be doing. Yeah. And in television so much these days, if you're doing a pilot or development, if you don't get it right the first time, yeah. it's don't. gone and then people are on to the next cycle. And and there's very little, uh, the attention, pan is, attention span is very short. And on this one, they actually got a chance to thoroughly get into it and explore what they should be doing. It's crazy though when you say that they that they got close on this. I mean, they got. It almost feels like in the research that we've done or that I've done, which I, I will admit is not nearly as much as I would like to have. Yeah. Um, they got much further than close. I mean, there are screen tests, there are shots with uh, with uh, with uh, William Shatner and Robert Reed. There, there, there's uh, Zahn. I believe yeah. like whole whole screen whole sections of 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 costume design and 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 a lot with him. I mean, did this ever go into full production or was it just I mean was it seriously like that close before it before it got well, pulled we, back? Well, we, we hope you're sitting down because <laughs> because Star Trek Phase 2 is a new television series to launch the new fourth network that Paramount was putting together. Right. Was uh announced oh when was that? It was like in July of 1977, pre-production on the series then went on for almost a year, but the show was canceled within a month of it being announced. Wow. And, and, and what we're seeing in those uh, tests, in the, um, in the construction of sets, in the costumes, and uh, all of the props, is simply the studio working diligently behind the scenes to put together all the deals they needed for the motion picture. And uh, they could not cancel the series outwardly or publicly until they had locked in the motion picture deals. And we, we, we noted this when we were working on the book uh, about Phase 2. John Povel, who was Gene Roddenberry's assistant at the time, uh, just turned out to have saved all the production oh, memos from that time. It was incredible went up to resource. And he had boxes and boxes and boxes, just all of this, this treasure of material. And it was sort of like being going in for forensic work <laughs> to figure out what had actually happened. And we started going through the production reports. Uh, every week, the production manager would, or the unit production manager, would write a memo saying where they were on the construction of sets and the building of the enterprise by Brick, Brick Price. 
And we started reading these and we started to see every week they were falling more and more behind schedule. And our knowledge of start of, of television at the time was that doesn't that doesn't continue very long. No, about the about the <laughs> calls a halt to it. Yeah, about the third week you're behind schedule, you're fired, and somebody else comes in to uh, straighten it up. But this went on for months, and so we were asking all sorts of questions. What was going on here? And it turned out that um, they announced this new Paramount network. Paramount had just bought the Hughes network, and so they were going to be a fourth television network, and Star Trek. Phase two uh, was going to be the anchor, uh, much as Voyager was for the United Paramount Network when it came out. And um, they could not get the advertising to work. And it was very apparent uh, within the first couple of weeks of going out to advertisers that there was no way Paramount was going to get its network off the ground. So they thought, well, we'll this two-hour pilot we were thinking of for Star Trek Phase two, we'll, we'll make that as a television movie and sell it to one of the other networks. But um, Alan Dean Foster had uh, pitched this story called In Thy Image to Gene, based on one of Gene's stories from Earth 2, uh, Earth 2 or Genesis, uh, called Robots Return, and uh, had developed it. And Bob Goodwin, who was a producer on um, Phase 2, in a meeting beginning of August in 1977, pitched that story to Michael Eisner who um, was at Paramount at the time. And Michael Eisner, when he heard that story, he said, we've been looking for a Star Trek feature film for five years. This is it. Hmm. And so less than a month, the the network was gone. There was not going to be any phase two. And Eisner said, this two-hour pilot, let's make that into the feature. And at that point, all the uh, machinations of... uh, the studio's legal department got involved because the one thing they wanted to avoid was they had uh, canceled Star Trek, the original series too early. They had then announced they were making a Star Trek movie uh, back in 75. They had failed uh, on at least two occasions to make that movie. The last thing they wanted to do was say, Oh, and this, this television series we announced um, that's failed too. (laughs) And uh, so what, what, what they needed to do was put together the deals they had to sign. William Shatner, um, they were pretty much passing on Leonard Nimoy, but they wanted to get everybody back together again and then say, oh, by the way, phase two is going to be the motion picture. And that finally happened uh, about a year. Uh, that was in, um, almost a year later. That was March 78. Can, can I ask, what is, what is the part the- that, than that uh, Star Wars and um, Close Encounters play in that because it's sort of common conjecture like once once science fiction started to hit big again then there was this idea that oh we need to get Star Trek on the air or Star Trek in the theater rather and you're saying that this was actually an idea that was kicking around at least a couple of years before Star Trek I mean uh, Star Wars was released yeah, definitely but that's yes. that's fascinating because uh, Gene had Gene had got a development deal at Paramount in 1975 to come back on the lot and develop um, The God Thing. That was the uh, the film at the time. And um, for The God Thing was turned down by Barry Diller. He didn't like the story. And so they had a whole stream of writers come in. They, Harlan Ellison uh, pitched, uh, Robert Silverberg. And interestingly enough, all the money that was spent on developing The God Thing and Planet of the Titans and all these pitches 
that was all money that was tacked onto the budget of the motion picture, which is why it was so fantastically expensive. It was basically paying for, you know, three it, or four years. It carried the baggage that had come before. Right. Mm. But so um, the movies weren't working out and they thought, OK, we'll make phase two. And then Star Wars came out and was a huge success. And Michael Eisner, he, he said at one meeting, he said, that could have been us. If, if we had been faster uh, and gotten our Star Trek movie out, we would have had that support. But of course, and this is, this is how, how thinking has changed in Hollywood. Back in 1977, the idea was, well, if all these millions of people have purchased a ticket to see a science fiction film and have seen that film, why would they ever want to purchase a ticket to see another one? <laughs> and and so the fact that they they just figured Star Wars was this huge fluke. All the science fiction fans had seen their big science fiction movie, and so they would never want to see another one. And so that didn't really uh, have any effect, other than you know a missed opportunity. But it was Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was another big, well-made, uh, very classy science fiction film. And that when that hit big. That sort of got Paramount thinking, oh, hold it, there is a real audience. And there's room for more than one. Yeah. I don't want to get too backtracked, but I, but I think here's the thing that I'm trying to piece together in my head. And hopefully you guys can shed a little light on this. Um, late 1974, the animated series is over. 22 episodes and they're done. And this is five years after Star Trek, the original series, is done. It is gone. <laughs> so here's Gene Roddenberry sitting on his baby, Star Trek, which has now been axed twice. And it seems that if I put together the timeline, by June of 1975, so really like eight months or so after, you know, eight to ten months after the animated series is over, he is already writing the God thing, the the script titled Star Trek Two, and I'm trying to understand: was there a transition there after the end of the animated, or maybe before the end of the animated series, where he's sort of back on track, trying to negotiate this with Paramount to come back and make more Star yeah. Trek? Because it seems very sudden, and I'm trying to figure out if this is just him on his own that determined. <laughs> or what really were, were the, the machinations to make this work? I think it, it wasn't one specific thing. Uh, the distribution, or I guess the distribution arm of Paramount, every quarter received immense amounts of money from the syndication of the original series. Mm. And that was something that had just never happened before. Uh, and so all the business people at Paramount were looking at the uh, income that was coming in from the original series. There was the sense that they had definitely uh, canceled the series too soon um, because of the way uh, Nielsen changed its reporting of demographics after 1969. Um, they realized they had this, this huge market and they were getting it in syndication. And so, you know, if, if something is successful, everybody wants to repeat that success. Mm -hmm. Certainly that's what led to uh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, Paramount, in, by the second year of uh, The Next Generation, was a million dollars in they the black. The, they were in the black. For every episode yeah. at the time they sent it out by satellite for the first viewing. Wow. And so everybody was saying, 
uh, we need more Star Trek even then because we're making <laughs> you know all this money and and so it was it was the build up it was um, certainly Gene was interested in keeping Star Trek going he was going to all the conventions people wanted more Star Trek um, there was even I know in one of our books we reported that at the nineteen what was it nineteen sixty eight Worldcon in um, Oakland uh, Gene actually said he was talking with paramount about a star trek motion picture that would be about kirk and spock in the academy so mm. that went back to 1968 so people were always the the executives were always looking at ways to uh capitalize on their success um can we talk a little bit about the god thing because i, I find that script to be really fascinating the kinds of details the kinds of character details um I, i'll just run down a list of some of the greatest hits to me um sulu is already a captain mm-hmm. he has prosthetic legs <laughs> um mccoy is married to a woman of romulan ancestry um and there are a lot of new characters in there and there are loads of biblical references throughout and and it's kind of akin to a brainwashing uh, the the way it's presented in that script. Um, you've got scenes in the 20th Century Museum, which I found to be very interesting. Um, but I wonder, because clearly you guys have read this script, and, and you mm-hmm. said that it, it was uh, the executive at Paramount at the time who kind of nixed that storyline. Um, but I wondered if Gene was going back to the well too many times, because we met God in Who Mourns for Adonais. <laughs> we, we met the devil in the magics of Magus 2. We met God again in How Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. And it, it seems like we've grappled with the concept in so many other ways before. I want to get your take on the script, kind of the, the good and the bad. I, it's very interesting you say go back to the well because one thing we've certainly noticed and one thing we're aware of as writers is that writers tend to have a limited number of stories to tell. Each one of them has a signature set yeah. that, that mm. they that speak to them and mm-hmm. that they go back to and this is what what uh, readers identify with and viewers identify with and that's how they can tell different writers sometimes. And that, that's one of the reasons why we tend to change genres so rapidly <laughs> yeah. so we can keep mixing it up. But we'll but, still be telling yeah. the same stories. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Just in different dressing. We won't but, be any different. However, but spirituality <laughs> is a big part of of Trek. It was always wound through it. Yeah. And and it even turned up certainly in Deep Space Nine where they gave a complete race uh, uh, sort of a, as a focus for it. Right. Mm-hmm. But with, with Gene and the God thing, uh, this going back to the well, certainly it's all of Gene's favorite themes sort of wrapped up into one movie. Mm-hmm. And Gene's great strength you know, looking back in hindsight his great strength in the original series and then at the beginning of Next Generation was not just in the stories he could write and create himself, but the way he could guide the stories that other people brought to him. And the way he attracted writers to him. He really was a lightning rod. And Mm -hmm. the the longer we're in the business, the more we realize how unique that was, the ability. He really did pull in a lot of people who didn't necessarily share the same themes that that he focused on. But he could take a story from somebody else and, and give it that twist and that it. polish. And make it fit 
his universe. Yeah. And so the God thing, uh, I think that's a, a very good analysis, which was these were all the themes we had seen before from uh, Gene, all compiled and compressed into one one story. And Barry Dillard was probably correct in thinking this was not going to have the wide mainstream mm-hmm. appeal uh, because it had become too uh, self-focused. Hmm. Self-focused, you mean that it, it it's it's an on-screen version of Gene working out his own questions yeah, about it, God yeah, and spirituality. It, it, it would reflect one point of view, and yeah. certainly the strength of Trek is many points of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, in that script, it, it really is, again, kind of like classic Star Trek down to Kirk being the one, the, the one among them who doesn't <laughs> buy into what's happening. So he yeah. has to stand alone. He has to face up and reveal this God thing for what it really is. But he knew his character. He knew his central character. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. So after the God thing is presented and nixed, um, the, and, and this was kind of mid-1975, at least the, the draft of it that I've seen, and yeah. the, there are pieces of that that sort of end up in in thy image, pieces of that that are then adapted for Star Trek the motion picture. So the, the threads of that kind of live on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and John Pavel Povel wrote a draft of a different story mm-hmm. by late seventy five. Yes, yeah. that so, was basically yeah. Gene had a development deal with Paramount in mm-hmm. August 75 when Diller said no thanks to the God thing. Um, the development deal was technically over, but and this is again something that doesn't happen in today's Hollywood, but Diller said, listen, Gene, keep your office and stay on mm-hmm. the lot and see what else you come up with. And that's what, so Gene got uh, John Povel, who was his assistant at the time, to, uh, John pitched a story and wrote a treatment. Hmm. Is that is that a difference between Hollywood then and now, or is that just symptomatic of Paramount's starvation for Star Trek that will work? <laughs> no, that's, that's big studios. Big studios are much more driven by... Uh, that office is, we can charge that out to a production at so many dollars per square foot per week. Mm. Um, so uh, we're not going to have an empty office being used for free. Um, <laughs> the, the, that entrepreneurial sense of, I've got space, come into my studio, that still exists in smaller production offices, but not on the big studio lots. Interesting. So we go forward a little bit more. And by 1976, Gene had drafted Planet of the Titans. Um, so let, let's talk about that then. Was this intended as a movie? Was this intended as a lead into TV? And tell us about that script a little bit. I, I've read pieces of that one, but I, I want to get, again, your take on it and sort of frame it for us and what was going on at the time. Right. That was... Um... Who was it? It was Chris Bryant and Alan Scott wrote that one. And again, it was uh, it was time travel. And uh, it, it was sort of an entire feature film version of the opening sequence of J.J.'s latest film in which, you know, the Enterprise <laughs> brought fire to primitive humans. Basically, the, the crew of the Enterprise was Prometheus uh, bringing bringing fire to uh, humans. Um, boy, the details of that script uh, are lost in the mists of time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but but again, it had that but relevance. Yeah, it was tagging on to JJ. Yeah. Again, it was it was a, not. I don't want to say rehash. That's a cruel no. word. But again, it was who mourns for Adonis. It, it was, revisited yeah. some of the some of those themes again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it seems like that's another theme that Gene would go back to was time travel, uh, just to yep. sort of throw his crew into a different situation um, and, and, again, continually to, to play this out again, just sort of over and over. You know, you know though, yeah. an interesting thing is, is in today's world, the way writers work is what Gene was doing then is highly rewarded now. If you mm. were writing something, say, for HBO or Showtime <laughs> or a, one of the ones that are doing these limited series of 13, they want one person's vision. They want mm. a restricted set of themes. And it's very it's not an inclusionary uh, big world, a big shared universe. It's one person's view of it. Mm-hmm. And in a way, and he was in advance of his time. If he had had that outlet, who knows what he might have done? Mm-hmm. What is your take on the reaction of others around Gene as he was pitching these stories and and trying to revive his show that had been canceled now twice? You you mentioned uh, casting, that they they were trying to get people back on board like Shatner. Nimoy was probably out at this point. Um, what, What do we know about that period and his relationship to the rest of the people who worked on Star Trek with him before? Um, our sense for the casting is Mm -hmm. that with the exception of Leonard, everybody was eager. I mean, they were all actors, all actors want to work. And, um, for, uh, planet of the Titan, uh, planet of the Titans, they had actually gotten a pay or play, uh, deal. So all the actors, um, and again, I don't know if this applies to Leonard, but uh, certainly uh, Nichelle and and um, all the others were paid as if they had done the movie, uh, mm. which is which is a standard thing. It's to if you don't know when the movie will start production, but you want to make sure you lock in your cast, you make these pay or play deals, which means uh, we will pay you whether or not we make this movie or not. So, um, you know, everybody was thrilled with that. And that's why uh, everybody except for Leonard was coming back for the uh, phase two television series. Um, So on the production side, the people who had worked with Gene on the original series, they were all eager to come back. Uh, um, Matt Jeffries was hard at work on um, Little House on the Prairies. And so he was on location with that show, but he was working nights, uh, you know, and in his hotel room. That's the story of Star Trek. People have yeah. always gone above and beyond whatever was required of them. Mm-hmm. They've, they've added that extra. Yeah. But, um, and then uh, finally, uh, Matt, when phase two was really uh, going into pre production, supposedly, the workload got great and too big. So Matt redesigned the Enterprise for the show, which became the next generation, or it became the Enterprise for the motion picture. But um, uh, he passed, uh, he suggested they get Joe Jennings to be the uh, production designer for phase two. Now, the executives at Paramount, though, if they hadn't worked with Gene, Gene was of the past. Um, executives tend to be very focused on the future. And uh, so the new people that were brought in at Paramount to be attached to phase two, um, they really, you know, Star Trek was something that had gone on a couple of years before and nobody was really too keen on it. 
Um, but then as people started to work with Gene, uh, they were sort of won over. He was very creative, very expansive at this time. And uh, people got excited by working with him. Well, and now there, there's a point even during the development of Star Trek as a feature film before going into phase two, before assuming that this would be a TV show, they had actually done some production work on that in the extent of, uh, was it Ralph McQuarrie they had hired to do some concept art and they had models built. And so they had even gone that far at that point, correct? Yes, yes. They had actually gotten uh, Ken Adam. And Ked Adam, you know, he had designed the huge uh, sets for things like Dr. Strangelove and for St. James Bond movies and that. And he became the uh, art director and he got Ken McQuarrie to, uh, Ralph or, I'm sorry, Ralph McQuarrie to um, redesign uh, the Enterprise. Uh, and that was something that, late, it's interesting because um, when you look at, um, Ralph's sketches of the new Enterprise, they're very reminiscent of the stuff he did for Star Wars and the Star Destroyers, very wedge-shaped. And um, they made little cardboard models of that, which ended up being used uh, in what they were, they were the wreckage in the Battle of Wolf 359. (laughs) (laughs) But um, after that, and again, this this is that whole sense of you get a chance to develop in one direction and say, oh, that's not the direction I want to go in, because they were radical redesigns of the Enterprise. And when Phase 2 came around, Gene's instruction to uh, Matt Jeffries was, don't want to redesign the Enterprise, just want to update it. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, you know, that's led to the motion picture Enterprise, which is probably one of the, the best models ever made. So then, then let's figure out a, a bit more of that period where we're talking about the – we finally sort of put an end to In Thy Image or Planet of the Titans, and now it looks like a TV network will will be a reality. Um, and Paramount, they were so behind it that this would be their flagship show. Yeah. Okay. And they had planned on that being 1978, early 1978. So really, they, they only had a little less than a year of development time between the time they got the order and this was supposed to actually go on the air. Yes. Um, so they, they go about doing everything. They're building sets, they're building models, they're getting costumes. Can you talk a little bit about that casting then? Because I know that in that test footage, and Ken, you've seen this test footage as well, where uh, Percy's Kambata is mm-hmm. there, and they're yeah. all wearing original series uniforms. Talk, talk to us a little bit about that. Uh, again, as far as we know, they, were very, they, they knew they were under the gun in terms of timing. The, uh, the planned order was a two-hour pilot and 13 one-hour episodes. Um, and the, uh, much, much like um, Next Generation, when that was given a go-ahead for uh, a half season, the idea was that even if it wasn't that successful, they would then attach those new episodes to the 79 being syndicated of the original mm. series, and they would make everybody buy them anyway. If they wanted the original <laughs> Star Trek, they'd have to buy these other ones. Where so. have we heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, the, uh, the set footage is fascinating because that whole warp core uh, turned into uh, a major set on the motion picture and then became the warp core in uh, the Enterprise D. Mm. Um, we, we just got... The sense we got from reading the memos was that they were 
urgently trying to get up to speed and um, they wanted to cast, but they didn't have final costumes. All the costumes had to be, of course, made. They couldn't be off the rack. So they simply went back and, and used whatever was already on the shelf. Uh, from the original series. They were going to redesign them for the television series or update them, um, but they were just throwing things together as fast as they could. The same was going on for uh, Brick Price, building the television version of uh, the redesigned Enterprise that um, they were pushing him really fast. Um, The level of detail for television in 1977-78 certainly wasn't uh, the demand wasn't as uh, as high as it would be for motion picture and large format so um you know there were problems with uh, or challenges with getting the finish correct on the cast pieces of the enterprise they were pushing ahead a bit too fast the uh the uh, space dock set uh which was completely redesigned for the motion picture that got very complicated um mm-hmm. Again, from uh, from the from the yeah. production memos, it was everybody was rushing off as fast as they could. But because the show had already been canceled from the top, there was no real direction urgency and no urgency to it. Yeah, because yeah. Gene urgency and, to actually figure out what they were going to do. Yeah, everybody everybody else, you know, people at the top normally the ones snapping the whip and making decisions. They were already thinking about the motion yeah. picture. It was infected by that entire process. Right, so. Uh, probably chickens running around without their heads. That might be a good way to look at it. Everybody was trying their best, but without that clear direction, you know, wheels were spinning. It was pointless. Mm -hmm. Now, as close as they got, though, they actually had 13 episodes, so a half season essentially laid out. If they didn't have full scripts, they had episode story outlines for those 13 and they they went back to some of those original writers margaret arman and and other yeah. uh, ted sturgeon people who yeah. were fixtures with the original series what what is your sense of the stories that they wanted to tell had this gone ahead as a production well i think they were mostly really just patting into position so they had resources that they could go to and mold and filling the time yeah our <laughs> sort of when we wrote the book on phase two and we sort of looked back on it, what yeah. our consensus was, was that this series would have failed. Yeah. Um, it was going to air on a Saturday night when the... Uh, Competition would have been fierce. Right. And and that demographic that they got in syndication, uh, where they were getting you you know the young males to watch it between six and seven when their parents were watching the news... Uh, which the young young male viewer wasn't all that interested in. They could watch Star Trek. Um, they decided they would run this new Star Trek on Saturday nights, so their demographic wasn't going to be there past the pilot episode. Um, and the stories they were telling were more of a season four of the original series, mm-hmm. but it was almost 10 years later that mm-hmm. these stories were going to air, and television changes, and it would have the felt audience dated. changes. It would have felt dated yep. and not original. Yep. And, uh, again, the benefit of that not is... Not different enough. They, they created these stories. They, they looked at a Star Trek 10 years on that wasn't different enough. No. And so when they came to do The Next Generation... Next Generation was different. It was different, and it matched its... At that point, of course, it was the 80s, and it matched a different audience Mm -hmm. from the one that had watched the original series. 
so as fans, the uh, the stories for the for Phase Two were great for fans of the original series, mm-hmm. but they weren't right in our opinion for television nineteen seventy eight, and uh, and certainly wouldn't have been for for eighty seven. Oh no, no. <laughs> well, but it, some of those stories got retooled into next gen, but I would assume after pretty heavy rewrite. Nothing's wasted. Yeah, nothing's wasted. <laughs> nothing's wasted. Yeah. And, 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 there's all, and someone's broken a first draft. That means that there's something you can work with. Yeah. The, um, what is it, Offspring from season two of Next Generation, that was when the writer's strike was on. And so oh, yeah. they, they wanted to look at what, um, you know, were there any scripts from phase two that they could adapt? And this is where you can see the evolution of, of Riker and Troy in uh, Decker and Aaliyah. Uh, you know, it's it's phase two is fascinating because you, you get to see the yeah. the shaping yeah, of it what is. the next fasc- generation became. Yeah. It's like prototypes. Mm-hmm. I, I said something on our uh, wrap up of the original series. We did a special episode with Rod and a lot of guests. And I, I, I think, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, because I can't remember if I said it then or elsewhere. But I, I think I had said that part of Star Trek's success is based on it having failed the first time around and and then i think the sort of early end of the animated series and here we've got at least three false starts where we had the god thing we had planet of the titans we had the phase two tv series and i feel like this is a constant in star trek that unless it fails at some point, <laughs> <laughs> that it won't succeed in the future. And, and, and I really, I, that fascinates me that you said that, that based on what you know of Phase 2, that show would not have lasted. No. And no. if we speculate, you know, what we're really saying here is that Star Trek could have come to a complete and utter end mm-hmm. by 1978. And there would not have been even the opportunity for movies. And if there's no opportunity for movies, there's probably no opportunity for Next Generation or anything else after it. So in an alternate alternate reality, William Shatner may have played Captain Kirk 13 more times. And then that's it for Star Trek. There is no more Star Trek. There's no J.J. Abrams. There's nothing else. Is that... A possibility? <laughs> well, the one thing we would throw, certainly there would be none of those, uh, the great original cast movies. There would be no Next Generation, no Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, all that. You would have missed Generations in the Middle. However, but, I mean, they did go back and revive Hawaii Five-0. Yeah, if, if, if you look at, at what was happening, <laughs> let's say, in the 90s, um, you know, they did My Favorite Martian, they did uh, Lost in Space. There were, there were all, you know, everybody was going back to, to television of the 60s to see what they could reboot. A Mission Impossible, there, there's oh, yeah. a good uh, one. Mm-hmm. But so, so I'm pretty sure somebody would have tried to reboot um, Star Trek in the 90s. But, you know, that's where we said, uh, written by Quentin Tarantino, Nicolas Cage as Spock, <laughs> Whitney Houston as Uhura and Arnold Schwarzenegger as James T. Kirk. <laughs> Wait, wow. can we can we have can we have Bill Murray as McCoy? Oh, oh absolutely. there you go. What a perfect addition. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah. This idea of the whole trek that never was is kind of a blessing in in that respect. I, I mean, it, it seems like it seems like every time Trek falls down and has to sort of pick itself up and, and dust itself off, we benefit on the other end. Um, 
Well, definitely, definitely. And, and, and look at Enterprise going down after four, yeah. and then the Abrams films coming up and finding a whole new audience. Yep. I'm curious. I mean, you, you, you mentioned uh, Enterprise sort of, I mean, uh, having its run, uh, maybe cut prematurely, and then the movies coming back up. As, as fans yourself, or yourselves, excuse me, um, TV or movies, where does Star Trek live? Well, TV. TV, because, of course, our uh, television always can give you that extra time with the characters. Yeah. And so from a, a writer's point of view, it's it's wonderful to get the big, big world you can explore in a movie. But it's so nice to go close up on such good characters. Yeah. J.J. Um, Abrams films, and now the third one. Uh, they're the vast spectacle of Star Trek. It's what every yeah. fan wants to see. And you can only see it on the big screen that way. Mm-hmm. But but the small screen, mm-hmm. you can get into people's heads. Yeah, and you can't do spectacle week to week. No. So they're, they're two different approaches to the same stories mm-hmm. and the same universe. But uh, it's lovely. The characters of Star Trek have, have just been iconic. Yep. Our our pet peeve is that years ago we were talking to a Paramount exec about a Star Trek project, and the um, the sense was that well, if you have a Star Trek movie out, you can't have another one for three years. If you have a television, uh, then uh, if you have a television show on, you really can't have more than two at a time. And there was this, it goes back to that sense of, well, everybody's seen a Star Wars film, so why would they ever want to see a Star Trek film? And today, we have two perfect examples with both coming out of Disney now, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Star Wars Universe. And they are going to just expand it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've always looked at these big franchises have a story volume, a story space with hundreds of characters and situations. And And it's a big shared universe with many stories in it. Yeah. And the fans watch Clone Wars. They go to the movies. They read the comic books. They read the novels. I don't think it's one of the other. um, Our preference might be that we love to get up close on the characters but right now is you want it all yeah and right now star trek star trek should be you know jj's original crew every three years but then in between like disney there should be another wharf movie there should be a a sulu television limited series on netflix yeah um they would all support each other yeah the, just the the sense that you can only have one at a time really belongs to the past, and uh, Star Trek should be like the Marvel Cinematic We're in Universe. Multiple universes now, and that's our opinion. When when we get to the motion picture, because on on Mission Log that'll be our our next episode is covering the motion picture. Um, what are the story threads? What are the ideas that sort of morphed their way from Phase Two into the motion picture. What, what, what should we be looking out for? Um, definitely Ilea as the forerunner for Troy mm-hmm. um, and Decker as the forerunner for Riker. Um, even their backstory is the same. Um, and again, for retelling stories that... For the motion picture. Yeah, for the motion picture. The Troy motion picture good. is basically uh, the story of um, yeah. Nomad. Oh my goodness, I forgot the episode name. Uh, the Changeling. <laughs> Changeling, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> See, Ken, um, Ken, you're not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> but Changeling, and then, you know, Gene retold that story again as Robots Return on his other series, uh, 
Earth Genesis, Genesis 2, Earth 2. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Alan Dean Foster retold the story again in Thy Image. And um, it became huge. You know, it's interesting. It's with The Wrath of Khan that Star Trek stopped retelling stories of the original crew and started expanding upon them. Yeah. Because Wrath of Khan was a definite sequel. But the motion picture was a retelling of a retelling of a retelling. <laughs> but it was bringing everybody back into the tent again. Yes. That yeah. one was. And and it was treated reverentially at the time. Yeah. Simply because it it brought it all back. And so I think that they can be given a little slack simply because people just wanted to look at the Enterprise. And yep. They just wanted to be back in that world. Yeah. Where uh, where did your Star Trek fandom begin? Because I know that you're both fans, <laughs> in addition to being professionals. Uh, it was my brother. Oh, yes, right. Yes, my brother. Judy's older brother my older was brother. in that demographic yes, that, watched, that it. watched it originally on, on screen. And uh, I can remember my mother being shocked because he wouldn't come to dinner at a certain time because he had to watch Star Trek. So, yes, so, and you, your brother never watched it. So I think when we wrote Federation, <laughs> we dedicated it to them, one who watched it from the beginning and one who would never watch it. <laughs> but the original series, definitely, watching all those shows, you know, coming home from school to watch them. And uh, you got wound in. Yeah. it's yeah. Uh, And also, we, we've had this little game where, and, and it's still true today. It doesn't matter if we're picking up the New York Times, if we're on Google, if we're, uh, you know, wherever we are, every single day there's a Star Trek reference. And it's in the economic section, it's in the science section, it's in something. But that, it's like the Beatles. It's, mm-hmm. It is one of those few things that uh, holds a special place. It's everywhere. Yeah. And, and it's not just a Star Trek reference. It's an original series reference. It's an original series. You know, it's, right. it's a beam-me-up or tells you, Klingons I mean, or Vulcans. It was one of those special moments in time that only mm-hmm. happens to a few stars and a few ideas and a few programs. And so when, when did your fandom become professional oh good question i'm i'm probably i i wasn't in the fandom until of course i got involved with you i yes i i (laughs) I took judy to her first that's right yes i'm afraid i was in the world of 19th century literature (laughs) yes uh Um, classics and um well i you know it was it was watching um the voyage home Yes, we'd gone to New York and we right. saw it. Right. And we thought, gee, I wonder if they write, uh, if they have books. Because we were doing books at the time together mm-hmm. and uh, we thought, I wonder if they do books. And we called up and they said, well, yes, if you, have a, if you have an agent. And we said, yes, we do. And they said, send us some ideas. So we sent them three and they picked one and that was our first book, Memory right. Prime. Memory Prime. That was the... Yeah. Um, so we... I'm trying to... Th- was that the first novel? That was the together? first one. Yeah, Memory yeah. Prime. And Don't it was yeah. we hadn't realized that there that people were writing stories about about Trek until that time. Yeah, so mem- Memory Prime would be yeah, it. Memory Prime. And then we wrote. Um, then we came down to the states and wrote Federation. No, well, actually, we yeah. pitched Federation. Yeah, they wouldn't and, let us do it at first because, of course, it mixed the two crews. Right. So, um, but, but what had happened was our editor had said, "Oh yeah, we love this. We're going to go ahead with it," and they <laughs> slotted it in. Yeah. And then they heard, no, no, um, I guess it was at the time Gene said, you know, you're not going to mix the uh, generations in a novel. And 
but they had us booked for this hardcover release. And I remember we went for a walk in the snow yeah, yeah. and came up with a story for Prime Directive and said, yeah. well, how about this? <laughs> Which, yeah. yes. And then... Which JJ was kind enough to say he used pages yeah. from for the dialogue so that in his sides that he gave to casting, the actors would know what their characters were like. We right. were very, very uh, flattered by that. Hmm. And, uh, and then we wrote Federation, and we thought, well, that would be it. The times changed, and it was time to uh, unite the crews. And uh, and then we got the call that said Bill Shatner would like to write some Star Trek novels. And so we just kept going. Yep. By uh, by full count, then, you have done... <laughs> we never count up things. <laughs> <laughs> never. Maybe. But you've done a you've done a combination of fiction, nonfiction. Um, the the book on phase two that you did came out in ninety seven, and has it been reprinted since then? I mean, what, what, I don't think I think it's uh, available as an e book yeah. edition. So mm. that the whole sense of going out of print, yeah. you know, uh, all those books like Art of Star yeah. Trek, etc., all those ones that are nonfiction books, they're just fun because you get to go through mm-hmm. uh, Michael Westmore's drawers, <laughs> you know, and, and <laughs> furniture and, drawers. And furniture yeah, drawers. I'd say that, that sounds a bit that, personal. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's right. The things people just tossed into yeah. boxes and kept, but it's that you know, like they'd never pay you what what it would take in the hours and you don't care because it's just such a treat. What, what led you to do the phase two project? What, what led you to doing that book and then kind of initiating your research on that? I think it was Kevin Ryan. Kevin, Kevin Ryan was yeah. our editor at the at, time. At Simon Schuster. At Simon Schuster. And he, honestly, we needed to be talked into that book because we, you know, he suggested probably two years before, he said, do you want to do a phase two book? And uh, we sort of looked at it and said, well, there's just no information available. And yeah. and so uh, we didn't see, you know, we saw maybe an article for Starlog, but, but how we can you do sure a book? where we would go for the research. And then Kevin just, he just made it his mission. And yeah. he came back to us about a year later and he said, look, I can get Harold Livingston's original script. John Povel has all these boxes. Yeah. Uh, look at all this stuff. And then he just set us loose. And at yeah. that point, we uh, we just went on that wonderful treasure hunt. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was yeah. such a mystery. It was a mystery because I don't think at the time that story had been pulled together. No, no. And certainly was not publicly known about what actually had been going on at the time, why it was allowed to continue for so long. Mm-hmm. And in in all sort of contravention of how production works, and how budgets are are achieved, and that, and, and that was fascinating. That that was like a mystery tour, right? And I remember the day we were talking to uh, Bob Goodwin, who had been the he uh, was on X Files at the time, right? And and yeah. we we met him in Los Angeles, and we said, you know, our big question is going through these production reports is everybody's going behind schedule, falling behind schedule what, more and more, and nobody's world? being fired. Why? And he said, oh, it's because the show was canceled about three <laughs> weeks right. after it was announced. <laughs> wow. Right. wow. Suddenly all became clear. Yeah. Another huge, huge thanks to Judy and Garb for joining us on today's show. Fascinating history about the Trek that never was, and, uh, Maybe thankfully, a trek that never was. Um, if you want to contact us and chime in with your opinions on that or a trek yet to be, say something about our episodes, you can. You can contact us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. 
The handle at all three is Mission Log Pod, or you can call us 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Next week, Phase 3 of Mission Log begins with the thing that replaced Star Trek Phase 2. We'll go to the cinema with Star Trek, the motion picture.